0: So, we are closing today seated at the right hand of God because I don't know about you, but I've tried, I find great comfort in knowing that Jesus isn't dead. Like, I find great comfort in knowing that, you know, I love what Job says back in his story I know that my Redeemer lives. It is an amazing thing to me to think about that our God is alive just as much today as he was thousands of years ago that our God is not dead. So just to think about how our God's not dead, I know it has been a big theme here lately uh, in in some of the Christian culture, you know, with God's not dead, the movie's coming out. But it seems like, church, I want to remind you this every day. That's why we celebrate Easter every year, is because we need to be reminded Jesus isn't done. We need to be reminded that He walked out of the grave, and He didn't just be like, I'm done now. No, He is still at the right hand of God. To think about that He is still there interceding for us, on our behalf, to think about how he's at the right hand of God. Every time that Jesus is mentioned, for the most part, after the resurrection, after the ascension, every time he's mentioned, most of the time in letters, He is mentioned as being at the right hand of God. Over and over again in the text, you see it over and over again, him saying that he is seated at the right hand of God. And so you see this imagery of the Trinity being all together. And I want you to understand something, church, that we're going to get into some stuff today. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult because I want us to finish well. And so our first point as we get into the sermon today is suffering leads to sharing. Suffering leads to sharing. Because here's the thing, everybody wants to get to heaven everyone wants to get the crown of glory everyone wants to be with jesus but we always forget that the the road to get to the throne is the road of the cross the way of suffering you do not get an empty tomb without there being a death i want you to understand that so there we have to share in his suffering but suffering suffering leads to sharing because we share in his suffering you know what the bible also says we will share in his victory if we share in his suffering, we will share in his victory. And I want to show you this. Look what uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 3 through 4 says. We're going right below where it just was. Consider him, that's Jesus, who endeared from sinners such hostility against himself, so that, look what it says, why did he endure? So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So what are you saying here? Guess what? If Jesus is suffered, he did it for us. He suffered for us. And guess what? We are supposed to share in that suffering. Why? Because he suffered. And so think about this. In your struggle against sin, let me tell you something. Struggling against sin never ends until we die. You will struggle, you will wrestle, you will have big fights with sin all the rest of your days. I do want to encourage you that. You might say, well, there's freedom in Christ. Absolutely, guys, but there's also struggle with the flesh still. Because you're still wrapped in it. But you know what the Bible tells us over and over again? Thanks to the Holy Spirit, we now have dominion over the flesh. We now have the ability and the power to say no to the flesh. We now have the power to deny the flesh. We now have the power to not let sin rule over us, but us to rule over sin, thanks to Jesus. So I want you to notice that there, where he says there that your struggle has not led to your bloodshed. Let me tell you something, ladies and gentlemen, for all the persecution we have ever suffered, I would dare say it has never been bad. Now I want you to understand some of what I mean by this. There's a huge difference in struggling with sin and persecution and just struggles. There's a huge difference in struggling for our sins and the hardship of being a Christian and just worldly struggles that we all suffer from. And there are worldly struggles that all of us, guess what, suffer from. I would dare say that somebody sitting close to you right now has, is going through a season of dryness. Somebody who you're sitting down right now could have a loved one who is on life support. Someone right now sitting very close to you could be someone who's literally suffering thanks to the faulty, thanks to the fall of sin in our world. That's not the kind of suffering I'm talking about. The suffering the text is talking about is suffering because of your loyalty to Jesus. And so he reminds us here, he says what? You have not suffered to the point of death. You know, I know hardly any of us will ever have to face, probably not, none of us in here will ever have to face martyrdom. You will never have to die for your faith. You will never have to choose between safety and faith. You will never have to choose between allegiance to them or allegiance to Jesus as far as it comes to losing your life. But the Bible is filled with people who they chose death and Jesus more than they chose life without Him. And so you see martyrdom on display in several biblical stories. You think about Jesus seated at the right hand of God. You think about suffering leads to sharing. You think about Stephen. Stephen, the first, one of the first deacons of the church, he was a guy who was very rambunctious. He was sharing the gospel. He was talking about how Jesus was the promised Messiah. Guess what? The religious people back in that day grabbed him, drug him out from the synagogue, I mean, drug him out and said, we're going to stone this man. Look what happens here in verse 54 in Acts chapter 7. Now, when they had heard these things, they were enraged. This is the religious people. And they ground their teeth at him. You know what? You're mad when you grind your teeth at somebody. Like a toddler, I want it now. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, you're mad. And so he, they ground their teeth at him. Him, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he says, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed upon him together. And they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the, young, at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they were stoning Stephen and called out, Lord Jesus, this is Stephen talking here, Receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold these sins against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Some, for some reason, it has become very popular to separate Christianity from suffering. When you look at ancient church history, they are very much intertwined. They are very much intertwined. And we've gotten a bad habit of separating them, thinking that you can be a Jesus follower and it not cost you anything. And that is not a Jesus follower of the Bible. A Jesus follower of the Bible, oftentimes it costs them their families, like we looked at last week. A Jesus follower of the Bible sometimes even costs them their lives. But they were willing to lose their life because they gained Christ. They were willing. They were willing. Let me just say this for some of your parents. You should be willing for your child to be mad at you because you make them go to church because you care for their soul. You should be willing to hurt their feelings and say, I'm not going to allow you to be on TikTok because I care about your discipleship. You should be willing to parent. Why? Because you care about them. You've got higher priorities than just their feelings that change like they change underwear. You've got a goal in mind. And so look what it says here. You might be thinking... Why in the world would God want us to suffer? Why in the world would God allow us to suffer? Many times when people look at the world, they're saying, if there is such a good, gracious God, how can God allow such bad things in the world to take place? I want to let you in on a little secret, ladies and gentlemen. We live in a Genesis 3 world, which is a fancy way of saying that we live in a world that is seriously broken and jacked up because of sin. Most of the, Every consequence you see on the news is not because of the Lord's actions, it's because of our actions. Because, like I said over and over again, I promise you, this church, I love you enough to tell you the truth. Nobody has hurt you more than you've hurt you. Nobody has lied to you. Nobody has done more things to damage your body than you have. I can do it. Wham! Uh, you know, you get up, you bloody, that didn't work. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, you trust yourself and you come up short every single time because you are broken. You know how I can know you're broken? Because I'm broken. And it's because we live in a Genesis 3 world. We live in a world where things don't work out for good people. Why? Because there are no good people. There's no good people. We're all broken. We're all sinners. You might think, well, I'm I'm a pretty good person. In God's eyes, you're not. You're a rebel. And so think about that, that. Why does God want us to suffer? Why does God allow us to suffer? Because the Bible talks about how God's a good, good father. And you know what good, good fathers do? Good, good fathers sometimes allow us to suffer to teach us a lesson at times. You know, we should sing, he's a good, good father. He'll paddle your tail. <gasps> Amen. We don't sing that, though. It don't sound good, does it? He'll put you in time out. We don't sing that. Why? Because it doesn't sell songs. It doesn't write books. But it's what the Scripture says. I know this because it says it right here in Hebrews chapter 12. Keep on rolling through the text. And have you forgotten the exhortation of the addresses that addresses you as sons? So we're sons of God and daughters of God. My son, do not regard lightly the disciplines of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. What? And chastises every son whom he receives. Verse number 7. It is for discipline that you have endured. God is treating you as a son. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. I want you to notice this, church. This is the only time in the entire New Testament that word illegitimate children is used. It means that not, you're not a legitimate child of God. It means you're a faker, you're, you're an a imposter, you're not somebody who truly is among us. Because let me tell you something, what I know from the Scriptures is if you belong to God, God will discipline you. God will bring you back into the fold. God will allow you to fall and to hit rock bottom. You know that phrase, God will never put on you more than you can bear. That's a lie. He will break you. He will let you hit the rock at the bottom. Why? So you see he is the rock at the bottom. Because he's a good father. You've all been there. You told your kids over and over again, don't do that. You may even smack their hand, but guess what? Eventually, they're going to touch a stove and find that stove hot. They're gonna find out because they got burnt fingertips. And you know what they're gonna tell you when you're cooking, stove hot, mom. That stove hot. Why? Because they got scars. Now I'm not saying you'd be like, go ahead and touch that stove first time. No. That's not good discipline. Good discipline is you try to limit their suffering and trials and hardship as much as you can. By the end of the day, some things can only be learned. Listen to me very carefully here. Through trials, suffering, and hardship. They can only be learned. You might tell them, hey, put your knee pads and elbow pads on. I don't need no knee pads. I don't need no elbow pads. Next thing you know, you got a toddler sitting on the sink. you pouring uh, peroxide. I need the knee pads. Because they learn. But guess what? There's a penalty for not listening to authority. There's a cost to not doing what your father or mother asked you to do. That's a biblical concept that we have got away from verse number nine besides this we have earthly fathers who discipline us and we respect them you you respect your mother and father because you trust them you trust them because they've proven that they are trustworthy they have proven they're trustworthy why because they have told you something to do and you believed it and you saw it so you respect them you respect them for that reason shall we not so much more be the subject of god our father the spirit and live For they discipline us for a short time that seems best to them, but He disciplines us for our good. Look at that. If the Lord disciplines us, it's for our good. That we may share in His holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Point number two, I want you to notice this, church. This is probably, if I were to say, a big takeaway I want you to get today. A big takeaway. Point number two is holiness offers temporary suffering, but leads to lasting joy. Sin offers temporary happiness, but leads to lasting suffering. I want you to read that again. Holiness leads to temporary suffering. You control yourself, so I'm not going to give in to sin. I'm not going to give in to it. I'm going to take reins of my body. I'm going to use the Holy Spirit, which God has given me, and I'm going to say no to that. I'm going to literally suffer. I'm going to withhold myself from doing something that my flesh wants to do. Guess what? That's going to be a little bit of suffering. There's going to be some misery there. There's going to be some discomfort there. But you know what leads on the other side of that suffering? is joy. Joy awaits there. You know what waits on the other side of suffering? Your marriage. You know what waits on the other side of that suffering? Your family. But you know what's the opposite side of the coin. Sin says, guess what? This will make you happy right now. And it is true. If you're sinning and not having fun, you're doing the wrong kind of sinning. Amen? Because sin's fun for a season. It's fun for a season. But the side effect of that sin is more suffering than you ever would have went through if you had just said no to it. You don't want to know about anything... If it has to do with sin, it always has small beginnings. It always has small beginnings, and before you know that those small things, you think it's not a big deal, guess what? They turn into big things, and they cost you your family. They can cost you your job. They can cost you your marriage. And I would dare even say they can cost you your life. But it's just temporary happiness, just one time. Isn't it amazing how much the devil whispers that into your ear? It's just one time. Nobody's going to know, but God knows. God sees it, you see it, and your conscience knows about it. What I found to be more true for me than anything else, church, is that it's not hard for me to forgive people, it's hard for me to forgive myself. Because I'm the one who's done the most damage. We have to remember that holiness, once again, offers temporary suffering but leads to lasting joy. Sin offers temporary happiness but leads to lasting suffering. And we are called by our Father to run the race. We're called by our Father to finish the race through Christ. So we talked about a young man named uh, Saul. We talked about how Stephen was stoned. He was killed by people throwing rocks at him, and he eventually died. But they take their garments, or clothes, and they laid down their clothes at a young man's feet named Saul. That Saul there is otherwise known as Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus was known as being a Pharisee, a guy who truly was the first, first major persecutor of the church. He was a man who would go to the high priest. He would get papers saying he could go to the synagogue. He would get papers saying he could go drag out Christians, imprison them, even kill Christians. He was a practicing Jew to the extreme of he wanted to see Christians eradicate it. He had papers from the high priest to go to Damascus. And sure enough, he was knocked off his high horse by Jesus telling him these very haunting words. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he was blinded. He was blinded. He went to the synagogue to pray, to seek out what God has him do. And the word of the Lord came to a man by the name of Ananias. And he told Ananias, I want you to go to Saul and I want you to go pray for him. And I want you to notice what happens here in verse number 13 in Acts chapter 9. But Ananias answered lord i have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at jerusalem and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on his name so you know ananias is saying ananias saying hold up wait a minute lord he was about to leave god on red amen he said hold up wait a minute lord this brother be killing people i've heard about this guy I've heard what he's done, I've heard what he's going to do, I've even heard God, he's got papers in his satchel right now that says he can kill me if he wants to. Isn't it amazing how God doesn't care about our opinions, he wants obedience sometimes? Isn't it an amazing, humbling thing that God doesn't care about your opinion, he just wants some obedience, he wants some trust, because our opinions kind kind of get us in trouble? There's a reason why second opinions is not a Bible book, amen? Amen. There's a reason why. Why? Because God's been doing this thing for a long time. He wants us to obey in faith. Which means sometimes you have to do things you don't understand. Look what God says to him. But the Lord said to him, verse number 15, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him, look what verse number 16 says. I want you to underline this in your handy dandy notebook, amen. Verse number 16, for I will show him how much he will suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord has appeared to you on the road by which you came and sent me that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight and he rose and was baptized and taking food he was strengthened. We know this brother not as Saul. We know this brother as Paul. And we know this brother to go on to write half the New Testament, which is all those letters, Romans. He wrote it. First, Second Timothy, you can go through and read Ephesians, Philippians, all those letters say in the very beginning a servant of Jesus, Paul, your brother in Christ, Paul. He went on to do extraordinary things for the cause of Christ, but you know what he also did? With extraordinary responsibility, I mean with extraordinary power comes great responsibility. He went on to suffer. He went on to get stoned by rocks at one time where they thought he was dead. The city officials came out and stoned him and you know what happens? The Bible says he got up and went back into the city. There was another time where he was so scared of his life they lowered him from a basket from the wall because people were trying to kill him. But you know what American Christianity in some parts and some churches paints it? When you become a Christian, you won't suffer. When you become a Christian, your life will get easier when that is the opposite of what the text says. And you might be like, well, I, I don't deserve to suffer. If they persecuted and suffered a perfect man, what hope do we have? What hope do we have, church? Because last week, like we talked about, you suffer because of the cross of Christ. It's intertwined. We're hopeful sufferers, though. So Paul would go on to write all those letters, and we don't know the exact amount of time from his conversion till his beheaded state. Believe it or not, he gets his head chopped off in Rome around 65 AD. Most historians estimate it's about 30 to 40 years, some say even less than that, of time served being a Christian, of him literally being on the road, traveling to churches, being on ships, being all kinds of, being on that jungle cruise, amen. He's all over the place. But here he is at the end of his life writing to Timothy, and look what he says here. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering that the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, it's only because he has kept the faith. Listen to this. Henceforth there. So because of the things before this, I can say this. It's like a therefore, right? Because of the A, I can say B. So because he has kept the race, because he has kept the faith, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, For the Lord, the righteous judge. For the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearance. Some of the most haunting words a human being could ever say is only God can judge me. You don't want God to judge you. You'll be fine wanting. Paul could write these words. Why? Because his judgment was not going to be based on his own life. His judgment was not going to be based on him keeping the faith. His judgment was going to be based on the finished work of Christ. It's only through Jesus that we stand a hope of standing before a holy God. It is only because our Savior intercedes for us that we stand a hope of standing before a righteous judge. Because a righteous judge only judges righteousness. And let me tell you something, we have no righteousness outside of Christ. We have none. We've got nothing good to offer Him. And here's the thing. There's a big, big, massive shift right now. People thinking, and it always has been, that I've got to clean my life up before I come to Jesus. And guys, let me tell you something. That is the opposite of the gospel. The gospel says it's because you're not able to clean yourself up, Jesus came to make us clean. It is because we were not able to work our way up to God. God worked His way down to us. So it's not placing our faith in our goodness. It's not placing our faith in our religion. It's not placing our faith in baptism. It's not placing our faith in our works. It's placing our faith in the finished work of Jesus. And you're trusting His test scores, amen? You're trusting his sacrifice. You're trusting his life. You're putting all of your hope. My faith is based on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. You're placing all your faith and hope in him. Not in yourself. Why? Because you know you can't save yourself. You know it. How do I know you can't save yourself? You can't can't keep track of your keys. I can't go a day without losing something. So I want to encourage you in that church to let you know that the gospel doesn't rest on your shoulders, it rests on His shoulders. Because nobody seeks after God. Nobody does. Everybody acts like they do at Walmart, amen. You want to kill somebody. You just do all the time. You might not actually do it, but you want to do it. Because that's what the flesh does. That's what the flesh does from the very beginning of our birth. The flesh cries out, Me, 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 me. Sin is not something you have to learn. Sin is something that's in your very nature. It's total depravity. It's total depravity. Why? Because you have to teach your kids not to bite each other. You've got to teach them not to hurt each other. Why? Because they want to. You want to. Emily watches a lot of uh, little kiddos. She's a nanny, if y'all did not know that. I, she's, she's a super hot nanny, too. Uh, and uh, little brownie points out there, amen. And uh, she, uh, we, well, there's some little, little kids she's been with for years. And last night, we were over there watching them, and uh, the little three-year-old, she could talk pretty good. She's the youngest of three of them. And the oldest little girl, she, she had told some lies. The little three-year-old, you know what she said? She said, she lied to you. She lied to me. She's a liar. Pointed at her because she knew, like, that's not right. You don't lie. Like, she'd been taught that. Because, guys, that's the thing. I want you to understand that sin is not something you have to learn, sin is in our very nature. You want to do evil. I'll prove it to you yet again you don't have to try to grow weeds, they just show up because the falls in the very soil. Genesis 3 in, went into the ground. I want you to see the cosmos of the gospel here. And you might be like, what, how am I supposed to finish the race? What hope do I have of finishing the race? You've got to draw to the one on the throne. The one on the throne. I want to keep reminding you of that. Look what Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16 says. We begin to go into the end of the sermon today. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. You know what I know about Jesus? He's passed through the heavens. You know what Jesus is? He's in eternity which means you cannot find him with the Hubble. You cannot find him on a map. He's in eternity. It's a realm outside of the cosmos. He's he gone. But when he's gone, he passed through the heavens and he arrived at his destination. Where is he at? Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. What's our confession? Is the gospel. Verse fifteen. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. You know I know about Jesus? Jesus came and lived a life like we lived. He came and He suffered like we suffered. He came and He cried like we cried. He came and He lived under the weight of the flesh like we did, but He didn't give in to the flesh. Think about that. The one who in every, every respect has been tempted as you are, yet without sin. That's what it says there. Verse number 16. Let us then with confidence... Draw to the throne of grace that we receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. That we may draw to the throne of grace. Our last little point, our our big takeaway here, is He is reigning in glory, holiness, power, grace, mercy, and help. Would you call out to Him today? He is reigning in power. He's reigning in church. Let me tell you something. Our God is not a God that says, man, I don't know what's going on down there at the earth. God's never been shocked by any headline. He's never been shocked by any moment of God because He's in control. Our God always has His hand on the wheel. Some the you thing. thinking, Jesus, take the wheel. He already had the wheel, amen. Because I'm telling you, He's in control. He's in ultimate authority, ultimate control because He's reigning in power. Do you know what the Bible says? The Bible says all of creation is held up by His words. So if God was dead, all of creation would cease like we sung last week. So everything, the very molecules of your very DNA, the very atoms of your cells right now, guess what? If God was dead, you would cease to exist. Because through His mercy and His grace, He's allowing you to live. Through His mercy and His grace. You know what I love about the grace of God? The grace of God is common to all and really felt by just a few. What do I mean by that? It's common by all. You know what God, you know what I love about the Lord? You can be saved and lost and enjoy fine Mexican food, amen? Like we can all eat food, eat fajitas, eat chip and queso and go, oh my goodness, this is good. You know what for the Christian, you know what we know? We know that our God gave us taste buds. God didn't have to do that, church. God didn't have to give us night vision. It blows my mind that you can turn off the lights in our eyes would automatically adjust. we we'll would be able to see things more clearly. God didn't have to do that. Boom, common grace. They might are saved or lost. You got breath in your lungs. Boom, common grace. Some of you got hair. Common grace. All of us get to enjoy the common grace of God, but only a few of us, pay attention here, church, get to really feel the grace of God. What do I mean by feel the grace of God? You feel it in your soul. Like what do I mean by you feel in your soul? When we sing those songs about Him, it overflows. Like when we sing, it's your breath in our lungs. Like you're singing off key as loud as you can. Why? Because you get it. Because you've experienced the radical saving grace of Jesus. The radical saving grace of Christ. Because I want to remind you this church, Jesus never... Start. Let me tell you. Let me Look. Go back. No one ever began a relationship with Jesus and things didn't change. Nobody. Because Jesus does the changing. Jesus does the changing. He gives you the want to. He gives you a new thirst. He gives you a new Lord. Used to, you follow the ways of the world. Used to, guess what? You follow the flesh of your flesh, the desires of the flesh. Used to, you do what you wanted to do. But when you accept Jesus as Savior and Lord, you start doing what He wants you to do. That's what happens. So let me show you this. Works does not come before salvation. Works comes after salvation. If someone has been saved... There's works that follow that. Baptism, I'm going to show you this, does not save anybody. Just like this ring does not make me married. No, it's my covenant bond I have with my wife. This is a physical representation of our covenant bond. But it doesn't make me married. It shows people I'm married. Baptism shows people I've been buried to sin. I've been made alive with Jesus. So it's very important to understand that. Because guys, I want us to finish the race. I want us to finish the race. And the only hope we have of finishing the race is to begin to close up one last little story. The only hope we have of finishing the race is if our father packs us over the line. I'm going to show you a picture up on the screen. Many of you probably don't know who these two people are. It's probably unless uh, you are a very, very heavy sports watcher, you've probably never heard their names. you probably didn't even heard their story. But I want to encourage you when you leave here today to look up every detail you can because it's such a powerful story. This is Team Hoyt, as they're known in the ultra-running and Ironman sports. Team Hoyt. This is Dick Hoyt, and this is his son, Rick. Rick is the one in the wheelchair. Rick is the one who his father is pushing him. Rick has suffered as a, from cerebral palsy, and he also is quadriplegic, as you can tell. So he's bound to the chair. He's bound to the chair so much, and he suffers from several pauses so much so that he cannot even communicate. He has to use a computer to communicate what he is thinking and what he's feeling. He's bound to the chair. When his father was 40 years old, he thought about running in a charity race, and sure enough, he thought, well, I'll take my son. I'll get Rick to run with me. So they began to run races together. They, they began to try out and run race after race after race when over time, ladies and gentlemen, the father-son duo ran over 1,000 races together. Ran over 1,000 races. All the while, Rick stayed in the chair and his father pushed him every time. Every time his father pushed him. And you might be thinking, that's pretty extraordinary. If you know what's even more extraordinary to let's go to a few more pictures here and let's really show you this. They would run, and look what his will say. It's a good life. Bound in that chair, being pushed by his father. Let's go to the next one, though. He biked with them. He did Iron Man's where you run, swim, and bike. And here's the even most mind-blowing one. Like I said, this last one here, we'll show you. When he would swim, he would put him in a boat behind him and pull him. thing, here's the church, here's what I want you to really understand. I want you to really get this because I think what Rick has to say sums up what I've been trying to say a lot better than I've said it. When Dick asked his son shortly after they'd ran that first race what he thought about it, how he experienced it, Rick spoke through his computer and he said, Dad, when I'm running it feels like my disabilities disappear. Dad, when I'm running with you, it feels like my disabilities disappear. Ladies and gentlemen, if you want to see what the gospel is in a picture, I believe it's those pictures. I really do firmly believe this, that we do not arrive at the finish line of our faith because of our own efforts. We do not arrive at the finish line of our lives at our own efforts. I truly do believe this church that the only way, the only hope we have of ever crossing the finish line is if our Father packs us. If our Father packs us. You know what I know and I love about this story? Even though one of them was technically running the race, both of them got credit for finishing the race. You know what I love about this story? How one of them was pretty healthy and able to carry that one who was disabled. Let me tell you, church, if we're anybody in the story, we're the one who's disabled because of the fall of sin. We're the one who is crippled from birth. We are the one who our Father is packing us across the finish line. And if we ever have hope at the end of the day to finish the race, if you ever look over a casket and think, man, this brother and sister of mine, they finished the race. And you ever wonder how did they do it? It wasn't because they were a good person. It wasn't because this or that. It was because their father packed them across the finish line. Because I'm going to drive that home with you, church, that he who began a good work in you, you know what the Bible says? He'll finish it. God will finish it, church. He doesn't start something He doesn't finish. And I'm going to tell you something. If you've got breath in your lungs today, what does that tell me about you? What does that tell me about you more than anything? Is God's not done with you. God's looking to do something with your life. God's looking to see you finish the race. I'm reminded as I see Him in that boat, what Isaiah says, when you pass through many waters, I'll be with you. Guys, it's only by the grace of God you've got here. And it's only by the grace of God you'll get there. It's only because we keep looking to Jesus. It's only because we look to Him as author and finisher. It's only because He is seated at the right hand of God we ever have a hope, ever have a chance of standing before the righteous judge and passing His judgment. Because, church, I want you to finish well. I want you to run the race. I want you to strengthen your wobbly knees. I want you to get a second wind. I literally want you to finish. And let me tell you something we're living in dark times, we're living in a dark day and age where people are doing all kinds of things, telling you to run after this, run after that. And I want to just encourage you to run to Christ, run to Jesus. And you might be like, how do I know if I should run to Jesus? You know what I love about the story of the prodigal? The Father runs to you. The Father is running to you. So I would encourage you this morning to turn and meet Him. To repent from your ways. Repent of the sin which you find yourself chasing after. Repent of trying to save yourself. Turn away from that and say, God, I can't save me. God, I need you to save me. Jesus, I need you to do something I cannot do. And that's some of you that might look like saying a prayer, but let me tell you something. There is nowhere in the Bible that says repeat these words and you go to heaven. No, the Bible says very explicitly it's about a relationship with Jesus. And that relationship with Jesus starts in all kinds of different ways. But let me tell you something, the end is all the same for all of us. And you have to remember that. So I would just pray for you this morning. If you might think, man, I've got questions, you bring them. Man, I want to come to the Lord. I want to just cry out because I need Him. Let me tell you, come cry out to Him. I love that story in John chapter 12 for those brothers who came to see Jesus. And I love the words they tell Philip. I believe it was Philip they were talking to. They said, Philip said, what are you here for? And they said, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope for you this morning. You came here and you wish to see Jesus. Jesus. Because that's how we win the race. That's how we finish the race. It's because somebody else is running for us. Praise God. Praise God for that. I'm going to ask every head to bow.